heart to believe them and to put them into practice. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we don't really have uh, kings and queens much in our world today, uh, but in the time of the Bible, kings and queens and monarchs were everywhere. Uh, that was just part of the common life to uh, live in societies that were ruled by uh, kings and uh, royal families. Uh, even the kings and queens that we do have today are pretty powerless in their roles. So the Queen of England is the official head of state uh, of our country, but she doesn't really do anything uh, except visit every now and again uh, and, and that kind of thing. And even in, even in Britain, where she does kind of possess more powers, uh, they are not that kind of useful in some ways uh, or, or really that powerful. One of the few real powers that she possesses is to sign bills into, uh, into law and theoretically she uh, holds the right to be able to refuse to sign something into law, but were she to do that, most people agree that uh, you know, all hell break, would break loose, uh, uh, not least because the last person to do that was in 1708 or something like that. And actually, I didn't realise, but she doesn't actually, I don't think she, in fact, even sets pen to paper to sign things into law, that the President of uh, the House of Lords and uh, the House of Commons are actually the ones who do it on her behalf. Uh, so she has very little power. The, one of the other powers that she possesses is to declare war, uh, but by convention... Uh, as with everything else to do with the British monarch, the power is exercised through the government. You kind of think it's very British, isn't it, that there's this kind of gentlemanly agreement that everyone just understands that the king and the queen won't do anything out of order uh, and the government, you know, just has the power. It's kind of, you know, not actually a very solid constitution. Uh, it's just kind of, oh, yes, we'll, we'll all do that. Um, it's, so, it's so British, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's a train wreck waiting to happen. But anyway, it's amazing that it's lasted. Uh, but it's, it's strange to us, I think, uh, you know, in, in light of the kings and queens that we do have in our world, it's strange to us then when the Bible speaks about a king, and it's strange, I think, for us then to go out to people and to say, uh, you know, Jesus needs to be your king. Uh, you know, kingship is, is, uh, is at the heart uh, of who God is, and kingship is at the heart of the message of the gospel. It's at the heart of what the good news is actually about, uh, but for, for most people, that, that seems a little bit strange. And even more strange, I think, in some ways, is that kingship is at the heart of this book of Ruth, which uh, on the surface seems like a kind of just a very happy love story. But actually, the book of Ruth is all about uh, God's kingship uh, and, and eventually the kingship of Jesus. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of Ruth uh, and of Naomi and Boaz uh, to fill you in, if you've missed out on any of that, in chapter 1, Naomi and her family had fled from Israel because of a famine. They had fled from God's land. Uh, one of her sons had married this woman named Ruth, but then catastrophe had struck. Naomi's husband had died, her two sons had died, and she was stranded on her own with her daughters-in-law. Uh, and eventually she just kind of goes back to Israel, goes back to uh, where God is with his people uh, and it's back in Israel, destitute, helpless, uh, that Ruth meets Boaz, uh, a man of incredible kindness, a man of incredible generosity. Uh, and last week, if you were here, uh, you would have seen that uh, what also happened was that Boaz, this man of kindness and generosity, accepts Ruth's marriage proposal. She says to him, will you marry me? 
Uh, and Boaz says, yep, I can do that. He's not ashamed uh, of, a, you know, of a, a woman of strength, a woman of power. Uh, and, and he says, he absolutely will do that. Uh, and finally, at the beginning of this section that we just that Ollie just read for us, uh, Ruth and Boaz marry. Here it is. Here's the climax of the whole story. Uh, we're waiting for the wedding day. It happens. Uh, Ruth conceives. She bears a son. But what's interesting is that that's about the last that we hear of, that is, in fact, the last that we hear of Ruth and Boaz for this whole story. We finally get to the kind of the climactic moment, uh, and Ruth and Boaz are kind of left behind. Uh, in fact, the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book, is largely taken up with the life and the events of Naomi. Uh, we call this book Ruth, but it actually ends by focusing on Naomi in some ways, uh, and we're not even told uh, how Ruth and Boaz responded to the birth of their son. Why is that? Why is it that we're not told? Well, I think it's really because the Ruth-Boaz story is tied up, it's, it's kind of comes to its neat end with the marriage and with the birth of a son. Uh, that, the kind of the, that story has been tied up. Uh, the marriage of Ruth, the birth of the son, is the resolution of Ruth's catastrophe. But Naomi's life, Naomi's story, remains kind of un, uh, unresolved. Uh, the book had begun, in fact, with Naomi's catastrophe. It didn't begin with Ruth. It begins with Naomi, it begins with the famine, with the move to Moab, with the death of her husband, with the death of her sons. Uh, It begins with Naomi returning uh, to the land of Israel in desperate bitterness. Uh, If you don't remember that, turn back to the end of chapter 1 and in verse 19, uh, where we're told... Uh, so, the two women, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Uh, at the beginning of the book... The, the whole town, the whole uh, town where uh, Ruth and Naomi go is a stir. They can't believe Naomi's come back. They can't believe she's still alive. You know, she's been away for however long. They can't believe probably how impoverished she is. You know, they went away to Moab for a better life. Uh, and here she comes straggling back uh, with nothing, no wealth to speak of. Uh, and Naomi says to these people, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant. Uh, call me bitter because God has made my life bitter. Uh, So the book of Ruth begins with Naomi uh, and with the whole town astir at her misfortune, I guess. Uh, But notice how now at the end of the book, the whole town is astir again and they're talking again about Naomi. So going back to uh, to chapter 4, verse 14, the people say to Naomi, uh, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, may he become famous throughout Israel, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law loves you, uh, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Other people point out that God has redeemed not just Ruth, but Naomi. Uh, The God who uh, who Naomi had accused of bringing her great bitterness uh, is actually the God who has filled her up again. God has filled her up again, especially, it would seem, in the birth of this grandson, 
if you think about her situation, she'd lost her husband, she'd lost her two sons, and now she's that. Now they are re- replaced, for want of a better word, uh, with with a grandson. Uh, the people of the town cry out, "A son has been born to Naomi, uh, not to Ruth and Boaz, but to but to Naomi." Uh, why is it such good news that Naomi has received this grandson? Well, it's because it represents a reversal of Naomi's fortunes, uh, as I said. It represents this provision of God filling her up after she had been emptied. Uh, and interestingly, the name of the child is Obed, which means servant of God. Uh, and that is a, a, a wonderful name for a child of Ruth and Boaz, who themselves are both tremendous servant-like people, who themselves are both servants of God. Uh, and now this servant, Obed is going to join those two servants, Ruth and Boaz, who served uh, God and who served Naomi uh, in their lives. This Obed will also uh, serve her and look after her and provide for her. I notice too that Naomi herself is not the person that she was. Uh, so in verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. She's, she's embracing this child, she's looking after this child, she's loving uh, him and caring for him. Uh, she has honour and dignity and purpose uh, in comparison to how she came back. So she went away full, she came back bitter, but she hasn't stayed bitter. God has been working all these things together for good. He's given her dignity and purpose uh, and honour in her life uh, now that he has restored this child to or provided this child for her. We call this book uh, Ruth, and it's not a bad name, I guess, uh, but we call it that because we think that the book is largely about the uh, rescue and the redemption of Ruth, but really this book is as much about the redemption and rescue of uh, Naomi. Naomi is the one who uh, fled when she should have stayed. Naomi was the one who abandoned God. Uh, Naomi was the one who came back bitter, but God uh, brings her back to himself and God uh, fills her up. Uh, And Naomi is the one, in some ways, who bookends this whole story. Uh, It's such a wonderful illustration, this whole book, uh, not just what God does in the life of Ruth, but what God does in the life of Naomi. It's such a wonderful illustration of God's incredible kindness, God's great work to redeem and rescue his people. Uh, It's a great illustration of God's great work to turn back to wind back the misery of our lives and to wind back the misery of the human race and to wind back the misery of the world to undo that and to turn it to joy. Uh, sometimes God is doing that in the here and now. So some of, it, some of us undoubtedly have experienced that. Some of us will have experienced God unwinding the misery of our lives and turning that to joy. Some of us have been in difficult or, or depressing or frustrating circumstances and we, have, we, have, we know God turning that around. Uh, we, we've been through terrible sickness, maybe, or, uh, and God has brought us out the other side of that. God has restored us to health. Uh, we've been through the sorrow of losing somebody, uh, whether uh, a spouse or, or a child or a friend or, or a brother or sister. Uh, and God, in that pain, has, has shown us the grace and the... And, and, uh, the love of uh, his countenance. We've, uh, you know, some of us might have lost friends, whether that's because they've moved away or we've moved away or, or different life circumstances. We might have lost, you know, our favourite hobby or whatever it might be. We might uh, have lost our house or our business. Uh, whatever it is that we, we've lost, uh, 
perhaps some of us have experienced uh, God winding back the kind of the misery and the misfortune of that uh, and replacing that disappointment with his all-sufficiency uh, and his love. Uh, so some of us have, ex- have undoubtedly experienced that from time to time, God unwinding the misery of our lives, and yet the reality Uh, I guess, is that most of us know that God doesn't fix everything up all the time. Uh, Sometimes God leaves things unfixed. Uh, Your life might still be a constant uh, misery. Uh, Perhaps that's due to pain, uh, physical pain. Um, Maybe it's due to problems at work uh, or difficult relationships or maybe it's due to the consequences of your own sin or your rebellion against God. Now, I can't promise you when God will turn that misery around, uh, but I can guarantee you, and the Bible guarantees you, and God guarantees you that he will, uh, he can, and he will turn that misery uh, to joy for those who trust in Jesus. Uh, I can't tell you when God will do it, but I can promise you that one day he will uh, for those who put their trust in Jesus. Uh, And I can urge you to flee to Jesus in the knowledge that he will do that. Uh, We always want to know when things will happen. Uh, You know, like the children in the backseat of the car. Are we nearly there yet? (laughs) We don't know. uh, But what we do know is that we will get to the destination because God promises that we will. Uh, Because the accomplishment of Jesus was to turn misery to joy. It was to turn death to life. It was to turn our estrangement from God into being God's children. It was to turn our ultimate defeat into our ultimate hope uh, and redemption. And what Jesus did on the cross in his death and in his resurrection proved that he can do that. He proved that he can turn death to life, defeat into victory. Uh, And if we trust in him, then we share in that. Uh, So if you haven't come to trust in Jesus, uh, then please, please do that because God promises that if you do, he will wind back uh, the misery and the distress of your life, uh, whether in this life or in the life to come. Well, that's the picture of uh, what God is doing in Naomi's life. But there's more going on here than just the reversal of personal fortunes. Uh, Buried in here, I think, is also the reversal of the fortunes of God's people as a whole. Uh, So we see that in the last part of chapter 4, and then in the genealogy that follows. So in verse 17, we're told that Obed was the father of Jesse and the father of David. And then the genealogy kind of goes on to map that out in kind of in greater detail, exactly how that works. Uh, So... If ending with the uh, Naomi kind of the story of Naomi over the story of Ruth seems odd, I think it seems even stranger that once we've got past Naomi, we end with a genealogy. Uh, you know, most people don't end their books, their novels, uh, with a genealogy. It's not usually the way you end a book is you say something like and they all lived happily ever after, right? You know, like, you know, everyone goes back home and everyone's friends again and all that kind of stuff. But what happens here in the book of Ruth is we get a genealogy. Uh, you know, he was the father, Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What's, why? Why is God telling us that? Well, again, as we've seen a few times 
uh, in, in Ruth, it helps to go back to the book of Judges, the book just before this one, because throughout the end of the book of Judges, there's this repeated refrain which comes back again and again, which helps us to understand what God was doing in the lives of these people and why God is ending this book in the way that he does. Uh, as I said a few weeks ago, the period of the Judges was a period uh, of cycles of people, the people would uh, turn away from God, they'd reject God, rebel from God, they'd reject his authority, God would bring disaster on them so that they would turn back to him, the people would realize what they'd done, they, uh, they would repent and turn back to God, God would raise up someone to rescue them, to deliver them, uh, everything would go well for a little bit of time, uh, and then finally they'd rebel against God again and the whole cycle would go over and over and over again. Disobedience followed by disaster, followed by repentance, followed by redemption, uh, followed by deliverance, followed by sin. And on and on this cycle went in the time uh, of the judges. But by the end of the book of Judges, things are getting bad. Uh, It's more like a spiral out of control than just uh, kind of an endless cycle. And it's at the end of the book of Judges that you find this repeated refrain. So turn back uh, a few pages in your Bible to Judges 17. Uh, And in Judges 17, verse 6, uh, we're told, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Uh, So what's the problem? The problem is Israel has no king, and everyone's just living their own way. So that's manifest in this particular chapter, with this one guy who decides to set up his own idol and his own priesthood. He thinks to himself, I'm not so happy with the, with the kind of system of worship that God has established for himself. Uh, I'm not especially happy with God as a God. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up my own idol uh, and I'll set up my own kind of religious system which suits me and my family a little bit better. Uh, you know, having the temple so far away in Jerusalem is a bit inconvenient. We want something a little bit closer to home, something that we can kind of do as a family together. You know, it seems really reasonable, doesn't it? But actually, it's complete apostasy from God. Like, he's completely rejecting God uh, and God's rule over his life. Uh, That refrain is then repeated in uh, 18 verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. So in that chapter, the problem is manifest and one of the tribes of Israel comes along and they see what this guy has done with his own idol and his own priesthood. And they kind of go, yeah. We like that. We could, uh, we could adopt that system of religion. That's kind of, that resonates. That resonates with me. Let's do that. Uh, so they, you know, again, they reject God's rule and authority over their lives and decide to go their own way. Uh, the refrain is repeated again in, in chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. What follows in that chapter is the account uh, of the attempted pack rape of one man by a bunch of other men. Uh, followed by the rape of a woman uh, and her murder. Uh, There's no king in Israel and everyone is doing as they see fit. Uh, And finally that refrain comes back in 21 verse 25. In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. What happens when there's no king? Everyone does what seems best to them. And what happens when everyone does what seems best to them? Well... What happens is mayhem and abuse and idolatry and every kind of evil. That's a significant uh, lesson, I think, because one of the highest ideals of our society is exactly the thing which uh, judges uh, highlights. That is, the highest ideal of our society is personal freedom, the freedom to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. 
Uh, Personal liberty is the God of our age. That is, don't you dare tell me what to do. I will do what I want to do whenever I want to. Thank you very much. Uh, The expression that's often used to describe that idea is autonomy, which literally means self-governed or self-law. And that is really, that is, we become our own kings. Uh, Paul Tripp, a Christian counsellor, talks about our kingdoms of one. That is, his, his idea, his kind of mental image, if you like, is of us all sitting in our own little castles, ruling our own little fiefdoms. Uh, we have our own kingdom and everybody serves us. And so long as everybody is serving us and sitting under our rule and reign or authority, we're okay with that, right? Uh, as long as everyone's obeying our rules and our principle and our ideology, we're okay. The problem is, is that if there are 8 billion people expecting everybody else to follow their rules and principles and authority, there's going to be a clash, Right? Uh, just like when you have two countries with different ideals, like America and North Korea, it doesn't work. What happens when 8 billion people are living in that way? Uh, there's conflict. Uh, and that attitude, that conflict of expecting everyone to serve us, to live in our uh, empires, is destroying our society. You see it most clearly, I think, in something like the gender identity debate, and in the idea which finds, I think, is perhaps most profound expression in that area, the idea that no one can tell me what to do or who I will be. In fact, not even my own, not even my own genetics, uh, not even uh, my own biology can determine or, or tell me who I should be or how I should live. Uh, I, the only thing that limits me is my own power for self-creation uh, and self-expression. Now, that's the only thing that can limit me. That, that's the mentality. Uh, it's the same spirit which is tearing apart uh, our society and which is fracturing uh, democracies across the world. Uh, why is it that the vote for the major parties has been fragmenting uh, and minor parties kind of gaining ascendancy and independence gaining ascendancy? It's not, let me just say, it's not because of disenchantment with the major parties. I mean, obviously that's part of it. But if that were the case, then it wouldn't be happening all over the world. It would just be happening in Australia, right? All over the world, political parties with vastly different policies are losing traction with people. People are going for all kinds of different political parties of all different kinds and strains. Why is that? It's because increasingly people are becoming more and more individualistic, more concerned with their own interests rather than the common good. And what is the inevitable result of that? The inevitable result of that is the fragmentation of society. The situation is so dire, in fact, that The Economist, a number of years ago, dedicated an entire issue to the decline of democracy. Uh, and I suspect it's actually only a matter of time before uh, democratic systems uh, horribly and spectacularly implode. Uh, the spirit of autonomy is tearing our world and ourselves to pieces. Uh, But the spirit of autonomy lives in all of us in uh, lots of different ways. We implicitly take it into our marriages and our relationships. So long as we think to ourselves, so long as everyone serves you and uh, and does the things that you uh, uh, want them to do, you're happy. But how dare dare anyone else expect you to serve them Uh, or to sacrifice for them? If they're sacrificing for you, great but not the other way around. Uh, We take it into our workplaces. So as long as you have the autonomy 
to work uh, at your work to do things how you want them to be done, you're happy. But as soon as your boss comes in and says, now actually, I'd like you to do that another way, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose. Uh, we take it into our attitude to the government. How dare the government make that law or impose that obligation? Why? Because its chief evil is that it inconveniences me, even if it's actually for the greater good uh, of society. Uh, how dare they make me drive slower, uh, if actually driving slower is better for the safety of other people? Uh, worst of all, we do it to God. How dare God tell you what to do? Uh, you're happy to acknowledge God, to believe that God exists, but how dare he ask anything of you in return? Uh, how dare God tell you what to do or how to live? Uh, how dare God tell you not to do one thing and to do another? Uh, but that's the prerogative of God uh, to tell us what to do. The problem in Israel uh, in the time of the judges was not just that people didn't have a human king. The problem was that they'd rejected God as their king and everyone had kind of gone off and kind of was pursuing their own life and their own interests and their own ends. But the cost of that, judges shows us, is the society in decay and decline. And what we need uh, for this to work is someone bigger than any one of us who we can all give our allegiance to. As long as we're all in our little castles and our own little fiefdoms, there can never be any peace or any harmony. But it's only when we find somebody above all of us uh, that we can all give our allegiance to. It's only when there's someone uh, greater than all of us that we can give our allegiance to that there can be any kind of unity, harmony, peace, prosperity. The ultimate solution is not for us to appoint uh, one of ourselves to do that. Uh, the, the solution is not stronger governments or better governments, uh, because governments are just flawed people like the rest of us. Uh, the history of the Old Testament shows that. The kings of Israel, never, it never worked. David, the, the one promised here uh, at the end of Ruth, was not the ideal king. The ultimate solution is not just to appoint another sinner for, all, for us all to look up to, uh, but the solution is for us to find a true king who's perfect in all his ways, a king who's good, who's wise, who knows the future, who knows our past and understands the past, uh, a king who always makes the best decisions and a king who works all things together for the good of those who love him. That king ultimately was not David, but Jesus. And the kingship of Jesus is not bad news, but good news. You see, because it's only that that can bring peace uh, and tranquility uh, to the world. It addresses, the kingship of Jesus actually addresses our most basic need, that is to have someone to rule over us to whom we all give allegiance. Uh, the reason that we're in this mess is because we as human beings have rejected God's kingship uh, and as human beings uh, we need to return to accepting uh, Jesus as our king. Salvation is about that, actually, is about accepting Jesus uh, as our king. Uh, if you know the gospel track, Two Ways to Live, that's the kind of the basic point of that. Um, there's some slides. Angela, can you uh, whack those up? So, uh, uh, so the, the basic point of Two Ways to Live is uh, 
uh, is, is this message of the book of Ruth. That is, God is the ruler of the world. Uh, he made the world and he made us to rule the world under him. So God's the big crown and God created us to live under his rule, but to rule over his world under him. Uh, and then the next slide. But what happened is that we rejected God's kingship uh, and we tried to establish our own kingship over our own lives and over our own uh, world. But the problem is that we fail to rule our own lives well and we fail to rule the world well. Uh, it doesn't take much insight to reckon that that's the truth. You only need to look at your own life and how poorly managed it is. Uh, and you only need to look at the world to see how poorly managed it is by us as human beings or by governments to realise that we really are not doing a great job uh, of taking kingship into our own hands. Uh, the next slide. But God, in his mercy, actually, won't let us rebel forever. Uh, God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. And actually, that's good news because it's good news that God won't let anarchy and rebellion go on forever. See, the distress and turmoil in this world is not the result, uh, it is the result, I should say, of our taking uh, responsibility for the world out from under God, taking it into our own hands. Uh, it's we who are actually causing the, the mayhem and the misery in the world. And it's actually good that God brings to an end anarchy and rebellion. Uh, just like, you know, if there's uh, anarchy and rebellion in Australian society, it's good that the government puts that down. Uh, no, one would have a, no one would have a question about that. Uh, in the same way, it's good news that God will bring an end to anarchy uh, and rebellion. Next slide. And yet, that's not the only thing that God does. Uh, because of his love, God sent Jesus into the world, the man, his son, the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, and Jesus did what we never did, and that is he always lived under God's kingship, under his father's kingship. Uh, and by dying in our place, he took the punishment for our rebellion and our anarchy, and he brought forgiveness uh, for those who trust in him. Uh, next slide. God uh, has raised Jesus to life again. And he is the ruler of the world. Uh, he rules in his father's place. Jesus conquered death and now he gives new life uh, and he will return to judge uh, the living and the dead. And so there are then two ways, next slide, for us to live. We can either stay off on this side, whatever side that is, uh, under our own kingship. We can either keep trying to live as our own rulers out front of the authority of God, that way ends in death uh, and, and, and destruction and judgment. Or we can live God's way. We could submit to Jesus as our ruler uh, and rely on Jesus' death and resurrection for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. The result of that is that we're forgiven by God uh, and given eternal life through Jesus. That's the gospel. Uh, and that gospel tract is about is picking up on what the message of Judges and the message of Ruth is. That is that God, that we've rejected the kingship and authority of God and God's uh, good news is that he is working to raise up, work to raise up King Jesus uh, to redeem us uh, and to rescue us. Uh, so please, if you're living on this side under your own rule and authority, please accept the rule and authority of Jesus uh, and submit to him. 
Thanks, Angela. So more is going on here than either just the reversal of personal misfortune in the life of Naomi, or even just uh, the reversal of fortune in the life of uh, the nation of God's people. Uh, ultimately, God was working for, uh, to reverse the fortunes of the whole world, uh, not just one person or one people. But perhaps the most surprising thing, I think, about the book of Ruth is that God was working to reverse the fortunes of the whole world through the lives of really quite ordinary people uh, and through really quite ordinary events. Uh, He was working to reverse the fortunes of the whole world through a bitter woman who'd run away from God. Uh, He was working to reverse the fortunes of the whole world through Ruth, kind of this foreigner who until kind of recent times, had not known anything about God at all. Uh, He was working to reverse the fortunes of the whole world through a man's kindness, through a guy who left some extra sheaves of grain in the field for this woman to pick up. Uh, He was working to reverse the fortunes of the whole world through a marriage and a baby. Uh, My guess is that Ruth and Boaz had not even the smallest inkling of what God was doing through their really quite inauspicious acts. You know, Boaz wasn't saying to Ruth, pick up the the, the spare sheaves because God is raising up the Messiah through this small and simple act, right? He was just living faithfully for God and God was using his actions for a grander and higher purpose that was beyond his wildest imaginings. Uh, Through the lives and actions of ordinary people, God was raising up a king, and not just any king, he was raising up the king, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the whole world. When you look at the family tree of Jesus uh, that Matthew records in his biography of Jesus, you see that Matthew wants to draw attention to the ordinariness uh, and brokenness of the lives of people, the people in Jesus' family tree. Uh, If you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, to the beginning of the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew writes there, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, and Judah had slept with her because he mistook her for a prostitute. Actually, she'd dressed up deliberately as a prostitute to trick him, Uh, so that he would sleep with her. Uh, She got pregnant and gave birth to Perez uh, and Zerah. So this is a broken family. Uh, Matthew continues, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So here's Boaz. Uh, It turns out his mother was Rahab. She was actually a prostitute uh, in Jericho who turned to God after she had protected some spies uh, and sheltered some spies from God's people. Uh, Matthew says, uh, then says, Boaz, the father of Obed, where we know that, whose mother was Ruth. His Ruth again, the foreigner, the stranger who hadn't known God. And finally, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So we get to Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, uh, Uriah's wife. Uh, That is, the woman that David had slept with, uh, got pregnant and then had Uriah murdered. Uh, 
Remarkably, though, it's through these sinful people and through their sinful lives that God was working to raise up uh, the Messiah, Jesus. That weakness and sin is not out of sight even in Ruth. A little bit earlier, back in Ruth, in Ruth 4.11, when Ruth had got hitched to Boaz and the people of town had been praying for what, was gonna, what their life was going to be like, They'd said, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. That is, the people want uh, uh, Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah who... uh, fought over their shared husband uh, and his affections uh, and they want her to be like Perez who was born to Tamar when he slept uh, with uh, his daughter-in-law. Sorry, who was born to Tamar when she slept with her father-in-law. It is hardly the most illustrious uh, background for Jesus' family. Uh, And yet... The message of Ruth is and the message of Matthew is that God was working through that to raise up Jesus, the Messiah of the whole world, the rescuer of the whole world. And I think the question that that we have to ask is, and the question that's on our minds and in our hearts often is, how could God use broken people like that to raise up a rescuer? How could God use broken people like that? We're not talking about just people who, you know, have just lied a little bit here and there. We're talking about people whose, whose family lives, whose lives were deeply broken deeply marred by sin. How could God use people like that to raise up the saviour of the entire world? The answer, I think, to that question is as simple as it is profound. That is, the reason that God can do it is because God's rescue is not about them, but it's about Jesus. God's rescue doesn't depend on them, on their character, or on the kind of people that they are. Uh, on the purity or the perfection of their lives. God's rescue depends on the perfection of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus and the atoning death of Jesus and the powerful resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't depend on their sin or their faults or their indiscretions or their failures or their poverty or their weakness. Uh, In the same way, God's rescue is not about us, but about Jesus. Uh, You see, we might be very ordinary, very weak, very broken people. We might be people whose lives are marred by sin, but insofar as we point people to the perfect Redeemer, Jesus, their salvation doesn't depend on us, but it depends on him. It's about people seeing him and knowing him and loving him. We so easily think that our lives are insignificant. We so easily think that God can't use us in the ordinary activities of our lives because we think that God's power depends on us uh, and who we are and what we achieve. But the reality is that most of us are exceptionally ordinary people. Uh, And some of you are far more ordinary even than that. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, without meaning any offence to anybody in the church, I sometimes look around the church and I think to myself, and this is God's army for reclaiming the world. 
this is God's army of people who are, some people desperately sick and have been for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, this is God's army of people who are struggling to overcome mental illness. Uh, this is God's army of people who, you know, are really facing immense difficulties in their workplace. Uh, this is God's army of people who can barely make ends meet, you know, maybe looking at losing the house, uh, you know, people who are systemically unemployed and, and just can't find a new job, uh, you know, people who's, who are struggling with bringing up their children, uh, who can't sleep because of it, uh, who are struggling with children who are wandering away from the faith, uh, you know, struggling with all kinds of difficulties. Are these the people that God means to use to redeem the world? Uh, and I think the book of Ruth says that the answer to that question is yes. And why can God do that? Well, God can do it because it's not about us and our power and our skills and abilities and our perfection and our purity. It's about Jesus and him. And insofar as people see him... They're swept up in the redemption and the rescue of God's great work in Jesus Christ. We think that God's ability to use us depends on our power and our skills and our persuasiveness and our purity, but God's pattern is that he works through ordinary people, uh, through a foreigner who hadn't known him before, through a woman who is bitter and struggling to overcome her bitterness, through a man who was just being basically kind and decent because he knew and loved God. Through a guy who got married to a woman who was out on her own. God used the ordinary lives of ordinary people to do a great work to bring redemption and rescue to the world through Jesus Christ. Uh, and God can use us in that same way because it's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. In the book of Ruth, God shows us that he's raising up a king he was raising up Jesus and people need to recognize and give their allegiance to King Jesus and God can use us uh, in bringing others to give their allegiance to Jesus as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you're a God who turns uh, evil to good. Uh, you turned the uh, most awful event in the, all of human history, Lord, the death and the death and crucifixion of your own son uh, into, the, into the greatest act uh, of mercy and love in all of human history. Lord, what we intended for evil, uh, that is, to dispatch you from our world, uh, you intended for good, that is, to redeem and rescue us and to call us uh, under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to uh, acknowledge our rebellion uh, and accept the uh, authority of Jesus over our lives uh, and to receive the mercy and forgiveness uh, in him uh, for the way that we've dealt with you uh, and the way that we still continue to deal with you in many parts of our lives. Uh, Lord, help us to trust that you're not only calling us uh, under the lordship of Jesus, but you're also working to unwind the misery of our lives, the frustrations, the disappointments, the sadnesses, the pain, the brokenness, the heartache, uh, the tragedy of our world, 
Uh, one day all that will be done away with uh, when Jesus returns uh, to judge the living and the dead. Uh, and Lord, in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to trust that you can use us in our ordinariness uh, to bring people to see that great and glorious gospel truth uh, of Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour. In whose name we pray. Amen.